Thank you so much, everybody. It's lovely to see you all. And I'd like to welcome my panel in a, in a moment with some brief introductions. Um, who is here for the, at the review panel for the first time? Any, any first time visitors? Ah, great, fantastic. Well, welcome, nice to see you. And let me just, for your benefit and just to refresh everybody else's memory, uh, run through our procedure. Uh, we are looking at several exhibitions and events around New York City. And uh, we have some visuals uh, to stimulate the attention of the audience uh, uh, who may not have seen the shows um, or the events yet. Um, but um, they are not really, as it were, a, a slide lecture. You won't be see us turning around and saying, ah, I want you to pay attention to the top right corner of that particular image. Um, they're just there as um, wallpaper for the intelligentsia, so to speak. And um, let's uh, uh, enjoy that, but not, um, not say, excuse me, can you stop it? I want to have another look at that image. It's um, not quite what they're there for or what, or what we are here for. Um, so tonight is a slight departure from normal procedure. Usually we go to see four solo exhibitions by living artists, um, primarily, uh, most often, at commercial galleries. And that provides a very uh, consistent and um, uh, f uh, uh, facile kind of structure for us to, to work around. Uh, but occasionally, we do uh, these review panel specials where we look at something uh, major in a museum, like the triennial at the new museum or the biennial at the, um, at the Whitney. And it's not quite tri or biennial, but it seems to be uh, a regular ritual for the Museum of Modern Art to shut its doors for a, a several months and um, reconfigure themselves and uh, try to work out again what modernism is and, um, and, and ask themselves deep and penetrating questions like, why do we exist? So um, uh, this is, um, uh, having said that, the first time the review panel in its 15 years has, um, has addressed that particular institution. Uh, which means that um, uh, doing a little quick mathematics here means I think they possibly haven't done a major, major overhaul since they reopened after that period in Queens. Um, well, anyhow, we'll get to that. So um, as Cora says, um, we are um, uh, looking at a couple of other projects, exhibitions besides the new MoMA. And knowing how these panels often go, we become very absorbed in the, uh, the main course, so to speak, and then find there's no time for desserts. So uh, the desserts, I think, we're going to treat as the uh, appetizers and um, look at uh, uh, um, Rashid and Wiley uh, first, and then after a brief question, uh, or not question, but comments period from the audience uh, on those first two artists. Uh, then we'll roll our sleeves up for part two, um, which is our uh, discussion on the new MoMA. So um, as Cora mentioned, uh, Lila uh, Pedro, who was scheduled to appear, has uh, come down with something. And um, I failed to check my emails yesterday and had a bit of a shock this morning. But luckily, uh, the heroic Seth Rodney 
has uh, jumped into the breach and um, is uh, in his capacity as a senior editor at Hyperallergic, um, uh, only too well qualified to speak on the subject of the new MoMA. Uh, and as luck would have it, happened to be on a panel speaking about Kahinda Wiley uh, last weekend and has also written on uh, Camila Janan Rashid in the past. So aren't we lucky in New York to have the likes of Seth Rodney in our midst? Uh, besides his position at Hyperallergic, uh, he's also uh, the author of a recent book from Routledge, uh, The Personalization of the Museum Visit. Shah Mr. Ray, uh, is, um, who's, who's Indian by birth and passport, perhaps, uh, is a British... Uh, she's going to be a good panel. Okay, um, Shah Mr. Ray is, um, uh, is, is an artist. Uh, she has her studio at the Elizabeth Foundation. Um, she is uh, our development officer at uh, Q, the experimental, the arts foundation that gives a platform to overlooked um, artists. Um, and um, she is uh, also uh, an instructor at the uh, at Parsons, where she's teaching on the MFA program in critical studies. Um, and finally, on my left here, uh, Raphael Rubenstein, uh, who is a contributing editor at Art in America. Um, years ago, you edited me a couple of times, and, and yet we're still here talking. So um, um, uh, Raphael is um, um, one of our senior critics at this stage. He's uh, author of um, the wonderful book, uh, Critical Mess, on um, the state of criticism, which grew out of um, um, a very important essay he wrote in Art in America called A Quiet Revolution. He's a poet, uh, and he's a professor uh, at uh, the University of Houston School of Arts. Uh, he's a professor of critical studies there. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. Great. Well, um, so we go to Times Square and we see our monument uh, there by Kahinda Wiley. And, um, are you good? I'm breaking my own rules by turning around and having a look. But, uh, rumors of war, uh, a statue um, in Times Square. Uh, it is a project of the Times Square um, Arts, um, of the um, Virginia Museum, Commonwealth Museum, where it's going to be permanently stationed after its uh, uh, New York visit, and Sean Kelly Fine Art that um, represents the artist. Is that the right lineup? I think it is. Um, so, what are we to, to do with this? What's, it, um, what's its function, do we think? Um, Raphael. Um, is this, do I need to turn this on? No. I, think, uh, I think it's doing a good job. So, you know, I, I think the meaning of this sculpture has changed in the last 24 hours um, because of the uh, election in Virginia. And, um, you know, I, my understanding is that the reason um, what uh, inspired the artist to make this sculpture is that he had a um, survey show of his work in Richmond 
um, a few years ago. And he, in Richmond, as you may know, there's this something that's called like Monument Row, or it's a, it's a, it's a whole sort of um, sequence of uh, sculptures, monuments to Confederate generals and. These are sculptures that were monuments that were created and installed in the 1890s. And, um, and I think Kahinda Wiley was so sort of shocked and maybe not shocked, but just troubled by the proximity of these Confederate, you know, heroes of the Confederacy to this museum, which was giving him an exhibition. And I think that was the inspiration behind, behind the sculpture. And, but I think one of the things that, um, that politicians have been trying to do in Virginia for the last few years, especially since Charlottesville, is to um, basically uh, pass new laws, because there are laws that have been passed in Virginia in, uh, over the last, uh, you know, going back decades, that make it impossible to remove any of these sculptures. And they've been expressly designed and written to prevent them from being dislodged, even by the city. So now that the Democrats, as of yesterday, are in control of the Virginia legislature, and they're going to, I mean, they're actually going to try, I think, to um, pass laws that are going to allow these, these pieces to be moved. So I think like it's interesting, it's always interesting to me to see how history and events change, you know, immediately can change the meaning of a work of art. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Steph? Well, I wanted to say uh, in response to that, that Sean Kelly, I was on the panel at TEFAF with Sean Kelly, and he talked about Kehinde responding to the question I want to say he was at a public talk and he was given a question by an audience member. Um, basically, what should we do with these old um, uh, uh, peons to the Confederacy? And he said that he thought that they should be left where they are, but contextualized by other artists' work. So other artists should be able to put work Next, and, and this is essentially what he's doing with Rumors of War. He intends to put them in context so that really the, this, this, this piece will oppose them, will, will suggest another kind of history um, uh, than the one that they are implicitly uh, suggesting. But I do want to say this. I think that it's an odd piece in that when I went to see it in Times Square, it felt completely overwhelmed by all the other moving pictures in that area. It's, it, it's on Broadway in that little plaza between 46th and 47th. And there are enormous videos of like YouTube. Like the, the, what, hap what, I, what I encountered was a woman, uh, a, a very um, voluptuous woman in I think a yellow, bikini and stockings and high heels, leaning back and laughing. And this, and because the statue is situated where it is, one has to look up at yes. it. And, and it kind of washes away in that kind of sea of like sex and, 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 and celebrity. And, and, and so I feel like where it is now, it actually loses the majority of its power. 
Mm. But, but I think where it's going, it will regain it. Yes, it's not just events, but obviously, or in fact, primarily, uh, physical context that really um, offsets uh, a work. I'm, perhaps the work would have been more successful in New York, somewhere like um, uh, in front of the Plaza Hotel, where, um, thanks to the 45th president, um, uh, any number of um, otherwise fairly prosaic and dull um, 19th, 20th century equestrian and other sculptures were uh, a couple of decades ago all covered in gold to, 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 uh, to blend better with the Trump Tower and uh, what have you. Um, but then maybe it would have had to been coated in gold as well, I'm not sure. But um, it's, uh, it's obviously a, a, um, a riff, uh, very familiar to those who followed Wiley's work of um, a contemporary uh, young perhaps slightly hip, perhaps slightly street um, black guy in, uh, in a pose uh, familiar um, art historically from kind of monumental, august portraits like um, the, the famous spin on, uh, is it Grow? Or um, uh, I think it's on, on Grow, uh, the portrait of Napoleon that puts uh, a young black guy in, the, in his place. Um, um, well, we've got the politics of Wiley, and then we've got the aesthetics. I mean, I, I'm not sure one can ever really draw a, a hard line between the two, but uh, Sharmista, um, I think we all get the politics. Um, what was its aesthetic impact? Well, <clears throat> I want to preface my comments by saying that I actually am not enamored with the heroic you know, in Western art, in painting, et cetera, just because, you know, having been trained in the Euro-American tradition in art history as well as art, um, and having distance from that, I now realize that a lot of this art was made by the victors and the colonizers and the people who were powerful and, um, you know, subjected people like me, you know, to into less powerful positions. And so um, I'm not enamored with that school in any case. And so while I really appreciate Kahinde Wiley's work and what he's done, uh, you know, in his place within art, art history now and within black portraiture, um, you know, I still, you know, I still read that school of the heroic, not only as a language of the colonizers, but also as being very patriarchal. Um, so I have, a, I have a tough time distancing myself from that. But that said, I think I might like Kahinde Wiley, the sculptor, more than I like Kehinde Wiley the painter. And I'm gonna call it Kehinde Wiley 2.0 because there's something about stripping away that ornamentation. And yes, I come from a South Asian culture and I love maximalism, I love ornamentation. I think there's a great deal of expression in that. Um, so, uh, you know, there's certainly no bias there. Um, but there's something about when you, you know, there's a stripping away of all this ornamentation of the paintings that you just get this really kind of, you know, I felt like it was a real, I felt it was a really powerful piece. I thought it was magnificent and I was not expecting to feel that way. I expected, okay, I have to go see this because I'm talking about it at a review panel, but this whole, you know, thing about monumentality and scale, I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, it's still gonna read to me as patriarchal and, you know, dominating and I, the language of domination is not something I'm interested in. Um, but I thought it was magnificent. I actually really liked its context because it again took away the veil of, you know, this kind of, you know, you know, it wasn't, 
you know, in this kind of sanitized environment. It was, as you said, this, you know, this African-American youth in contemporary gear and in Times Square. You know, there was something kind of messy and complicated about it and like just the light from those screens kind of falling on his face and him, you know, his, his body contorted in this kind of very powerful, you know, of course this is all coming out of art history and kind of like the angles and all of that, you know, the kind of contraposter pose, you know, the powerful pose. But I just thought it was magnificent and I thought it was powerful and I thought it was political because I was standing there, you know, before dusk and there were these group of black youth and you could see how their bodies had changed in public space being in front of that sculpture. Mm. You know, they were having their pictures taken and it was like, you know, there was another, you know, group of, you know, small groups of, you know, um, black people and they were just like looking at this thing in awe and admiration, like they couldn't believe it, you know, that this could happen. And um, I think, especially given the times that we're in, not just what's happened in Virginia, but I think, you know, the environment that we're living in, right? Uh, that is making targets out of everyone who are people, you know, people of color, people who are foreigners, <laughs> etc. I just think it made a really powerful statement and I really appreciated that. And what I'd noticed was not the light falling on it. I did and I like the aesthetic of that because I like things that are slightly messy and complicated. But what I did notice was that it was towering over all those other pieces, sculptures. You know, those were kind of diminished and almost disappeared, were completely washed away with the, with the screen lights that were coming on them. And this particular sculpture just stood out. And um, so, no, I, I, I appreciated it. And I, and I thought it was quite magnificent. Fantastic, yes. So, um, so it's, it's a civic project, isn't it? Um, what is the, what, well, but what does he want us to really talk about then? Well, is, I, it, is it, because if it's just to say, um, here, is a, here is a way to countermine uh, the, um, uh, here's a way to counter the oppressive legacy of these statues. Um, well, the question of, of what he wants us to talk about, I think, was one of the things that, actually, not the sculpture itself, but the way it was presented that, that somewhat bothered me. And surrounding the sculpture on this giant pedestal, which has a title and the name of the artist, mm. are these sort of stanchions, these like, you know, with text on them. They're basically like wall labels, yes. um, which are, there are like four of them, and they describe the, you know, they tell you what the work is about and what, he's, what he means to do. And I don't know, I mean, maybe I'm being too sort of old-fashioned modernist that like, the idea that you should be able to get everything you need from the work itself and not be told mm. what to feel about it. And Spoon-fed as I, I feel like, mm. you, know, you know, it's, I think one of the hardest things in the world is to make a successful public sculpture. Mm. And I think there are very few. Um, and I think that, you know, what, one thing that makes it successful is that, one, it's going to have some longevity. It's going to be able to you know, it's never going to have that much, like it's maybe a generation or a couple generations, but I feel like, to me, that pointed out a possible weakness that it had to be explained, and maybe because, you know, this is not a museum, these are like Times Square, it's filled with tourists, and they don't know nothing about mm. contemporary art. But I I've just, I suddenly remembered as I was there, uh, a block away is another 
almost invisible public sculpture that's been there since 1977 by Max Newhouse. It's a it's a sound piece that Newhouse oh, yes. that was commissioned the by the Dia yes. in 1977. And it's underneath the grate. It's between mm. 45th and 46th Street on the same basically. If you just come like one block, it's a, it's like the traffic island there, mm. and this is a piece that there's no sign that it's there by the Artists Express planning. He wanted people to discover this, and it's just this sort of chiming, droning sound that mm. you, I mean, probably ninety percent of the people just for some kind of. Right oral po yeah. uh, pollution in, in a way. I mean, and, I, I, and have, I, I just think yes. that's like the contrast between this where like, it's like mm. the context and the meaning of the work is like made explicit. And then at the other end of the spectrum mm. is this Max Newhouse that it's, you, mm. it, it's completely, it's not just that it's sound art, but there's, it's there to, with an openness of meaning. And I feel like mm. I wish they, mm -hmm. The, the people presenting it or would have had more confidence in the power of the work to let it be on its without. Yes, but yes. The, and then you got it immediately juxtaposed with the, um, uh, what's his name again? I've forgotten it now. The, uh, the great songs, uh, the great um, songwriter, is it Khan? Um, Cone? George Gershwin? No, no, it's... Um, Khan, Sammy Khan, yes, you got the Sammy Khan monument just there, just a bloke on a on a on a pedestal. Um, obviously, an unremarkable statue. I mean, uh, truth be told, Kahinda is Mr. Wiley is presenting us, I think, with a talking point rather than um, sculpture. I don't. I mean, I don't. Of course, it is a conceptual work, not a formal work, primarily. It uses formal means to evoke particular traditions, but um, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't really draw us into its form, per se, does it? It's, um, it's, it's, a, it's just a marker, it's a signifier, and it's there to provoke, there to um, stimulate conversation, and I, I tend to agree with Raphael that it's kind of disappointing when it's already pretty obvious what it might be leading us towards to um, have our aesthetic reactions policed in that sort of... Uh, or, or even if it's not obvious. I mean, to, hmm. you know, I think like, this is not, this is like a wider problem, is yes. that, you know, letting works be open to many interpretations or misinterpretations or misunderstandings that there isn't like one kind of approved way of reading a work yeah and i think that's like the institutions tend to push us into those well, responses well, when you have a situation where you have one essentially approved or sanctioned meaning of a work you have propaganda right that's that's the sort of distinction i make between art and propaganda. But I want to say about uh, Kehinde Wiley's work in general that he's always had the ambition. And some people have called it a trick. I had a conversation with someone, I'm sure you all heard this, that, um, you know, that Kehinde Wiley is essentially a one trick pony, but boy, what a trick. Mm. Well, it's, 
I've called it an ambition. He has an ambition to raise the status of urban black man, essentially, right? Um, there's a way in which what he does is more messy and complicated than what the original uh, sort of, um, adulatory statues for the Confederacy do, right? Because that's all about affirmation. That's all about affirming social status, where he's, what he's doing is suggesting a kind of opposition, is suggesting an alternative history, is suggesting um, a politics, a set of politics, right? So he's provoking that. That actually is a, it's not, you know, I agree with you, Raphael. I think that it's not great work in that it doesn't lend itself to really sort of complicated readings, but it goes a little bit further on the continuum than the original statues, which it essentially opposes. Isn't it more about, um, is he really elevating the, uh, the black dude on the horse, or is he using the black dude to uh, poke fun at the stuffy old um, racist generals uh, that uh, um, will fill the rest of the Monument Row. Uh, oh, I, I, I don't, no, I don't, I don't think he's using the, the work to poke fun. I think he's actually using the word to work to oppose them. I think it, it is very much in that, it is formed in that language of dominance, since it is, mm. it is, um, it is shaped with that discourse around power. Um, and it's a deflationary tactic, isn't it? I'm sorry? A deflationary tactic. It's, um, it's like throwing the moustache on the Mona Lisa. Huh. Um, Otherwise, why else, why, why would that particular chap be on a horse? Um, I mean, people of color are entitled to go horseback riding as anyone else, but they would usually want to wear jodhpurs and a helmet. So um, he's there, I think, to uh, satirize. Um, he's like um, the, the black actor in Blazing Saddles, I think. It, it's a sort of um, uh, in the Mel Brooks. I think he's, uh, that's the way I read it, uh, hmm. uh, as sort of saying, as a big fuck you to all those monuments. But then again, there is a history which is not very well known, but there are black cow cowboys, and they have been, and, and mm. they exist. So there's a way in which, for me, it feels like he's actually just suggesting that, um, that the person that you imagine riding a horse can look like this young man here. Yes. Um, I, I don't see it as, as being satir uh, Satirical. Satirical. And, and I feel like I think he is identifying, as he does in his paintings, with that heroic, patriarchal, and um, you know, I think that's I think he's really invested in that. And I and I think that there's a maybe there's an ambiguity. Like I mean, is the title is Rumors of War? So is this yes. an anti? If this is an anti-war monument, it doesn't kind of spell that out so clearly. Like to you know, he's like. Is he, you know, is he a soldier? Is he, you know, is he in battle? Is he, you know, is this a, is this like a symbol of peace? I don't think so. Mm. It's like it's not. It's not like a pacifist right. statement of pacifism, because I don't know that you could like make a statement of pacifism with like with that. You know, just the symbol of the horse, even without someone on it, is already there's a certain like aggressivity and 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 force and power to it, and I. Yes, I, I think horses that, I think, are war machines. Yes. I, mean, I, I think that 
his, I, yeah, I, I'm. It, it seems more ambigu ambiguous than than right. satirical to me. Yeah, I mean, I would uh, agree with that in the sense that um, irony would assume some kind of ambiguity and. With Kahinde Wiley's work, you th called it a one note, I think, or one trick. Um, I think what that's, but I'm, you know, right, I'm, you were I'm, quoting somebody. Yes, else. yes, right. Yes, sorry, that's not, that's not um, sorry about that. Um, no, so I agree with, and I think that's why I've never really been drawn into his world. I can appreciate it hard historically and in terms of contemporary art, but um, I don't think that there is any irony here at all. I think it's very direct, and um, I think I prefer it in this form than I do in the paintings. Um, that kind of directness and in public space I think it really works because um, I think in public space your audience you know is a group of art critics right it's the public absolutely well let's turn our attention to um, Rashid uh, sorry Kamala Janan Rashid's um, exhibition um, um, at the Brooklyn Historical Society um, now here is um, here is, I think, really an instance of, um, um, I, I think when I chose these two shows to go with our MoMA discussion, um, part of me was wanting to uh, think of, um, of, of ways in which a certain kind of um, civics informs um, uh, contemporary art. Um, because of a hunch that I have vis-a-vis -vis MoMA that um, um, MoMA with its new uh, manifestation, um, has um, edged away from its um, uh, high modernist narrative to be um, make us much more aware of the museum as a civic institution. Um, uh, we'll come come to that later. But um, so, I think with um, Rashid, um, what we see. Uh, is, is something really rather interesting. It's maybe an instance of, um, it's one of those shows where um, if you are, um, say, a Muslim living in Brooklyn or somebody with many Muslim friends or relations in Brooklyn, you might be drawn to the Brooklyn Historical Society to see an exhibition that mines their uh, vocal archives um, of um, recordings of black Muslims in, sorry, not black, of Muslims in Brooklyn. Um, and um, in the process, get to see some contemporary abstract or conceptual art. Um, whereas for others, perhaps like myself, um, you might be curious in the work of uh, an artist and find yourself exposed to um, more ideas than you ever thought you would need to investigate into Muslim life in Brooklyn. So it's a kind of nice kind of civic bridging uh, exercise of uh, bringing, uh, bringing art to one community and the community to the art world. Um, how do we feel that um, uh, Rashid is really um, um, what, what is the um, relationship between uh, Rashid's visual presentation, installation, um, and the uh, source material from which she draws? Um, uh, Sharmista, could you give us a, a quick 
one-line description of what is happening in this. Oh, shoot, I'm an idiot. Excuse me. Um, yes, Sam, um, I was going to ask you, uh, we got a, like a one-minute recording, uh, because actually, uh, how many of you managed to get to the Brooklyn Historical Society? Who saw the show that we're discussing? Ah, very much the minority. So it, it is therefore worth doing the work of um, recounting exactly what it is that's happening. What you see from the slides, where are the slides? Have we not had any slides yet? Can we, yeah, we have. What you see from the slides, um, there is um, uh, some historical context, a sort of time flow uh, of um, Muslim life in the borough, uh, starting interestingly, fascinatingly from my point of view, with um, the first mosque was actually immigrants from uh, Russia and Eurasia. Um, so in fact, uh, Muslims of a very different race and ethnicity from um, most mm, Brooklyn Muslims today. Um, and then we have these kind of concrete poems, uh, these, these uh, abstract works with text, um, and they are uh, dispersed in the gallery with, um, you go around the gallery with a, uh, um, a little um, iPhone, and you, uh, depending where you are, you get to listen in on these excerpts of um, uh, a dozen or so um, Brooklyn residents that have been recorded uh, describing various aspects of Muslim life, a particular neighborhood, or uh, celebration of some festivals, or uh, an experience of one mosque in an anti-drugs campaign, so on and so forth. And I thought it'd be uh, good to complement the visuals, uh, Sam, if you would play it now, to hear a, a, a quick excerpt of one of those um, audio recordings. And the Eid celebrations were very much reflecting our culture. And you know, culture is a multifaceted thing because you, the culture is not just music and the food you eat. Culture is music, the food you eat, the manner in which you speak, how you treat people, how they treat you. So the, the celebrations, when you went to the uh, Islamic uh, Eid celebrations, they, we would have those things we were familiar with, food and everything. We had the congas, which are the, like drums, but they're tall. And we, we had congueros who played the, drum, the drums for us. And we, had, um, we even played some of the music. We didn't try to we didn't overdo it, but a little of the uh, Puerto Rican music. We had people um, actually recite poetry. Um, uh, the, um, I'm trying to think of the New Yorkian poets. We had some, um, some stuff from that. And we had the play. We had a play they put together, which made us laugh. And so they really um, made us feel happy in this time of Eid because we were imbibed with what was familiar to us. Great, thank you. Let's get the images back, Sam. And so um, we go into this smallish room on the third floor of the Historical Society. 
which, by the way, is the most extraordinary, magnificent building in um, Brooklyn Heights, uh, worth going just to see the library, which is a uh, tour de force, um, uh, let alone to use the library. Um, so, Sharmista, we have these um, the visuals, uh, which um, this is just on the, in the antechamber, but um, you'll soon see the room with its um, artworks by um, uh, Rashid. And you can then go up to and listen to uh, these uh, conversations. How would you characterize the um, relationship between the abstract slash conceptual slash concrete poem uh, imagery um, and the uh, historical resource from which it's from which it draws. Um, well, I want to I, I want to say first of all, I think one of the things that I was struck by most. I know you wanted one line. I'm not sure I can. <laughs> could be a very <laughs> a could one be line a punch. Proustian line. It could be very long. Yeah. <laughs> it won't be that long either. Um, no, I think one of the things I was most struck about uh, struck by in this exhibition, uh, if you can call it that, it was an audio immersive audio listening uh, experience um, is the absence of anger. Uh, because when one thinks about identity politics, and I myself came of age as an artist, you know, um, and a student, art student, um, in the, God, when was it now? Um, the late 1990s and the early 2000s, up to mid-2000. Um, and we carried forward the language of identity politics, which was really driven by a kind of anger to change the system. Um, you know, and so I still entwine identity politics with a kind of, whether it's direct anger or residual anger, but the foundation is anger. Um, and an ins insistence on change. And when I walked into this, I was looking for the anger. Um, I was looking for the rage, uh, you know, especially if you think about the positioning of Muslims in this country and how they've been so villainized. Um, and instead, I just got drawn into this, and excuse the word lovely, but because that doesn't really have a place in you know, art criticism, but it was just this loveliness that I was enveloped with these stories, and they weren't you know, didactic stories, they were not trying to sound you know, a certain way or you know, come across as smart. They were just people living in these neighborhoods, in different neighborhoods, um, who were you know, giving short versions of their experience of being Muslims in Brooklyn. And um, so it's, it's, it's very straightforward in that sense. Um, and it draws you in. And um, I'm thinking back to a lecture I went to by Tiffany Chung, who is a Vietnamese-American artist, also works within the post-colonial, and she does these performance lectures. She just had a show at Tyler Rollins uh, that ended recently. Uh, but she br brings together kind of like this older version of identity politics with a newer version of kind of allowing people into the conversation. The reason I'm bringing that up is she said something that struck me, and this was maybe two weeks ago. Um, she said that, you know, people, you know, if you um, confront, you know, no one likes to be confronted. And I thought that was interesting because that was the old language of identity politi politics, that you confront and you challenge. And I thought, you know, this is an artist I really respect saying this, you know, I've got to go away and think about this. Um, and just this past week, I was uh, teaching my students uh, critical thinking and critical thinking about a paranoid position versus a reparative position. And I thought, that's it. 
this is actually the millennial generation of identity politics, perhaps. Maybe it's a new ushering in, a new gener generation of identity politics, which is about the reparative, and it's about healing, and it's about bringing other people into the conversation. And I feel somewhat personally ambivalent about that because I still have my one foot in the old school, <laughs> you know, and I'm looking for the anger, but I can certainly see as a strategy what she's doing because she's such an, Camila Janan Rashid, now I'm talking about, is such an intelligent artist. Um, now I'm gonna answer your question, um, coming to it in the Proustian way. Um, I didn't, you know, the, the images themselves in the gallery, you know, they, they were just signifiers on, you know, not even signifiers, they were on a wall for me, in order to just activate the story, you know, it's like you stand in front, there's 11 stories, so there's 11 images and there's some smaller things going on and, you know, some concrete poetry and snippets from, new, it looks like from newspaper articles. But the aesthetics to me was not the point. Uh, it's not what I walked away with. It was just about being in an immersive listening experience. There were some visuals there, but I didn't respond to it as aesthetics. It was really about standing in front of each of these and activating the story. And I became more interested in the immersion in the story. So um, to answer your question, I didn't really have uh, you know, an experience of the aesthetics in that sense. Right, yes, because um, Pat called me an old fashioned modernist, but I kind of like to see some integration of um, where I am seeing an installation which draws on uh, sound and visuals, some relationship between the sound and the visuals. Um, I, I liked, both individually, I'm just not quite sure. It's it's like certain when you go to a uh, uh, one of those Pokemon restaurants and you get ingredients you love, but you're not quite sure why they were put on the same plate at the same time. Um, where is the is there a symbiosis uh, in your experience, Raphael? Um, David, I totally agree with you. And my, I mean, I found both elements of this exhibition really interesting. I really responded to. Uh, the prints on the wall, which were, you know, I think like taking the sort of concrete poetry, erasure poetry, um, building on the kind of opening up of the poetic language, starting with Mallarmé back in the late 19th century. And, you know, and I think also I thought about the, some of the abstract forms, maybe think of Ellsworth Kelly compositions and 1960s paperback cover designs, and and I felt like there was a, and I also liked the way the artist sort of broke out from the frame and put these little pieces of paper with text on them or no text, just glued to the wall and as an installation. And I I really was I I, I enjoyed that, and I also found the um, oral history recordings fascinating and rich, and but I. One thing that, and maybe I am also an old-fashioned modernist, I, 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 at some point, and I was really impressed with just the technology. It was like really great that you would just, you know, walk a few inches from one print to the next, and the previous voice would fade away, and the new one would come up. It was, I mean, just technically, you know, really impressive. But I felt that at some point I just wanted to look at the work and not listen to a really interesting story, and I would take off the headphones so I could concentrate. Maybe because I've like, it's hard for me to like concentrate on more than have two things in the same in my mind at the same time. And I also felt that the, um, but more fundamentally, uh, I felt that the artist really subjected the visual 
and linguistic aspects of the work to a kind of deconstruction and, and kind of questioning, but nothing like that happened. There was no sort of problematizing or just working with the oral histories. And I, I, I thought that, to me, that would have been more interesting if there were in more of an inter interaction. I just didn't know what to do. They were both interesting on, you know, taken separately, but I just couldn't combine them. Right, right. Um, uh, Seth, do, do you feel that maybe even some anxiety about um, visual representation would have informed, uh, you know, the, the Muslim prohibition on uh, um, representing the face or the body, um, although um, one, one suspects that, a, you know, that even the most uh, orthodox Muslim living in Brooklyn today would be perfectly happy with a photographic installation. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, uh, do, do you think there's any way in which the um, abstraction of um, Rashid's work was in homage or out of respect to the tradition that uh, she's engaging with in this exhibition? Oh, that sounds to me like a good guess. From what I understand of um, Islam, the prohibition is against representing the prophet or deities, um, i.e. God, um, Allah, um, representing those figures with some, uh, with some other system besides language, like pictorially representing yes. them. I think that was But you wouldn't thing. actually see representations of, of any body, for instance, in a mosque, and you wouldn't see, right. uh, you, that's why, and, and within the manuscript traditions, as with Judaism, there's uh, a preference for animal and floral motifs over the human form. Well, it's, it's very possible. I've always read her work. I mean, I've seen her work over the course of now, I guess, three years. Um, I saw her, uh, her show at AIR, AIR Gallery, and then she had an uh, installation at, I think, Governor's Island, um, and I may have seen her work somewhere else. She, she, I think what, what Rashid, Rashid is really skilled at is precisely doing that thing where she deconstructs language, where she shows how it, it falls apart and comes together um, in these very sort of surprising ways depending on happenstance, depending on um, sort of location in physical space. Yes. So the abstraction reads to me like it could very well be informed by that <coughs> feeling, that response to the tradition, but it also is very much about the sort of magic that happens with um, the sort of haphazard or intuitive combination of visual elements. Right, fantastic. Well, um, let's have a quick break now where the audience, um, a very patient audience, can give us uh, their take on either exhibition, if they've seen it, or um, on the conversation as it's evolved so far. We'll make it a quick, uh, we'll, we'll do this relatively briefly, if you don't mind, um, because we've got lots more to cover, but Patricia, um, I was just, when I was listening to the conversation about the Wiley, I was thinking about the Kara Walker sh uh, installation at 
Turbine Hall, um, where she completely reimagined the Victoria Monument, which was a monument basically to colonialism. And unlike Wiley, she really gave it a stylistic spin and um, kind of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sculpture that references the Middle Passage and a lot of American art as well as this British sculpture. But it's much more kind of aggressively making its point, and it's really powerful and, and monumental. I mean, it's probably, it's, it's huge, but I just wanted to make that comparison. Very good, thank you. So I just wanted to say about, about this show, like when I went into this show, I was really, I was looking at the artwork and, and having this feeling of disconnect from like handling the equipment and then seeing this, what looked like modernist designs. And then as I sort of lived with the, um, the oral histories, it became a contemplative space. And then I became more sensitized to the fact that the room was painted blue, which is a color that you see in, the, in that, you know, that type of design. You see that in mosques. That's a particular kind of blue that I am familiar with. And also the ceiling, you don't see it from these photos, but the ceiling is very high. And there's this gorgeous chandelier with big balls, you know, big mm. orbs right above you. And it, and it creates this extremely meditative space. Mm. And that, to me, made the whole thing tie together. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, the, the Kahindi sculpture with the title, uh, The Rumors of War, that suggested a Paul Revere image to me, like uh, announcing of potentially a gathering storm of conflict, uh, contemporary or possibly upcoming. I got this real Paul Revere warning feeling from it. Fantastic. Yes, good, thank you. Uh, this side of the hall. I just have to vent that I hate the left hand on the Gehendi Wiley sculpture. <laughs> I hate what he did with it. It's just doing nothing. It's like on the saddle. And I felt like he could have done something more creative with the left hand. And <laughs> what do you make of the facial expression of the statue? Is the lips are pursed in a somewhat, I, the longer I look at it, it, it almost looks like he's, I don't know, it's just the pursed lips. So the pursed lips in the left hand, I'm curious what you think, critics. Um, Sam, do you think we could have the Actually, loop, first loop back again. I, I actually, I do have an answer to that. Like someone, yes. someone, um, I just visited the. Um, oh, I was having a conversation with that. Was it a Tefaf, who says that she just thinks that Kahindi Wiley is terrible at doing hands. He's just <laughs> terrible at it. Like he consistently screws it up. Oh, that's right. I now I remember who I should uh, who who said this to me. I probably shouldn't tell you. Because, well, she said it to me in confidence, and we were on our way to a dinner, and, and she said something about, oh, yeah, she also said that Toyin Odotula has the same issue, like hands. Uh, apparently, some artists struggle with this. I think most artists who don't draw a lot and really want to get it right have trouble with hands. Hands are the hardest things to do, which is why, love him or hate him, John Singer Sargent is just... You just see a hand in Singer Sargent, you think, whoa, how does he do that? Um, yeah, but that's, that's the kind of, um, that's why I say it's a statue, not a sculpture, because 
Um, that's the level of very perceptive and intelligent questioning on the actual physicality, uh, the actual uh, visual experience that I think um, basically uh, doesn't interest him. I think he uh, goes to the jugular with a particular, there's, he's got the reference, he's got the talking points, um, but the, the object itself is really just a trigger to that experience. Uh, the experience doesn't refer back to the object itself. Uh, Mike, wait for the mic. Can you come to the mic? Uh, front row, please. Thank you. I thought it might be worthwhile considering the notion that perhaps this figure really um, um, refers to fragility of identity and that we, we have to remember back to Marcus Aurelius on the Capitoline Hill in Rome, which was not melted down as a large-scale equestrian statue because the slippage of, of mnemonics, the later Romans thinking it was Constantine, the first Roman empire, I mean the first Christian empire. So that there was, there was this, this sense that this figure is not really charging ahead, he's turning and and, and the horse is, is kind of reeling, and there's, so there's a, kind of a precariousness to it that I think brings a, uh, an element that is just as evocative as Marcus Aurelius surviving as a pagan leader on horseback and, and was a model for all those statues ever since, mm. uh, and not having been melted down by the later Roman Christians. Right, right. Good bit of um, art history there. We'll take one more comment, the lady here. In the and I just want to say about the facial expression, I think, I th I think Kehinde Wiley was trying to do defiance. I don't know if that comes across, but I would, defiance. Oh. I think, okay. I'm gonna assume. Right. Yes. I, d I just wanted to add that in the history of equestrian statues, when it's symbolic when, you know, where the leg placement is of the horse, and I, I couldn't remember what it was, I just looked it up. It symbolizes somebody who died from injuries caused in the battle. And I right. think that adds to the content of, of the work. And that's present here? Pardon me? Is that present here? Yes. It's got, the horse has one leg up. The horse has one leg ah. up. And, uh, well, we'll p should we take a quick vote as to whether Mr. Wiley knew that or not? No. That would be in, uh, grossly impertinent. Thank you very much for all those uh, comments and all that input. Um, cool. Well, um, I did not do a good job of timekeeping. Uh, actually, my intention was to rush through these first two. Uh, but in fact, it's just as well. We've actually given it half the time, which is dignified and intelligent and correct. Despite, despite, my, best, despite my best intentions, it was dignified and correct. So um, we're now... Um, Ready for loop one, um, Sam. We are going to divide our uh, attention and discussion of uh, the new MoMA um, into uh, segments. And we're first concerned with uh, uh, how the building is looking and um, what's, the, what's the parable, new, uh, old, old cloth for new wine? Uh, anyway, um, the New Testament is not my uh, patch. 
Um, uh, well, MoMA is, um, is one of those institutions that does periodically expand. Uh, it never seems to contract. But it's, um, it's, it's um, the, the opportunities of uh, the, the, the reconfiguration of the museum. You remember the controversial uh, demolition of the Museum of Folk Art, um, uh, which was a rather treasured little architectural um, gem um, by the same architects who did the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. Anyhow, it's, uh, it's been replaced uh, because they needed to use that space as a corridor. Well, at the time, uh, at the time of the demolition of that old building, that not so old, old building, uh, that seemed intensely Philistine. But actually, um, one has to give credit to MoMA and its directors and its, uh, with their obstinacy of um, uh, that corridor does make a big difference, doesn't it? We've got a, a much, it's a bigger building, but it's also a calmer building, isn't it? Um, I think the the new MoMA that we were supposed to have gotten used to was a rather cold and alienating and above all very loud place and that um, uh, they seem to have actually gotten the architecture really right now. Is that, uh, is that a verdict we um, would go with on the panel? The architecture? Yeah, I mean, I think I actually didn't spend I didn't pay much attention to the architecture and maybe that's a good thing like yeah it's I, like if you're I in a restaurant if you don't notice the service the and, yeah. uh, you know yeah. and it just did it, it and like other people have said this too it's like a feeling of just wandering you're not you know I guess MoMA has been trying for you know decades to wean itself from the Alfred Barr kind of uh, path through you know the teleological path to yeah heaven but um, but now it's like you just, oh, this is interesting, and you sort of wander into another room, and then you find yourself in a different building. And I, for me, that was refreshing and I, you know, a success, I think. Yes. The word that came to mind when I was wandering there today was comfortable. And, and they've actually um, made the rooms not only more sort of um, comfortable, but they've made, but they've, I mean, to make them comfortable, they've actually put a lot more benches in places. So mm -hmm. there's a lot, lots of um, opportunities for people to just sit down and contemplate work. Also, th the work feels like it breathes more. It feels like, I, 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 I really echo your take on it, David, because in the, in the museum today, it felt like I wandered through spaces where, like, I felt like, ah, oh, oh, that's good. Oh, right, there are only like six or seven objects in here and they're really talking with each other and I get to sort of listen in. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about the entrance. I agree with the gallery spaces. I think that those feel a lot more open and spacious. And also I think that some of the juxtapositions and new narratives they've created are also far more exciting to me as a person of the global south, which means basically the non-Western world. Um, I think they've made far greater strides in that department. But the entrance itself, even though it's bigger, it felt to me like I was gonna take a flight somewhere. Like, I had, <laughs> first of all, that security outside, and I don't know whether this is, uh, you know, I've <laughs> kind of been tainted by being there at the opening, where there was like so much security, and 
there was this barrier and there was this protest going on outside. You know, <laughs> it was, so it just feels very heavily policed in the front, it, it which is. is a bit weird. And uh, then you go in and there's this lounge and there's not, I don't think there's a bookstore. There's people sitting in the lounge. They're just sitting there. On their phones. Mostly. On their phones, you know, and they're not, they don't look like they're, I don't know if they just came out of the museum or they're going into the museum, but they're just sitting there. And I just thought, what are they, you know, it feels like they're waiting to take a flight somewhere or they're waiting to check in. <laughs> and then you have that setup, which looks like a check-in. Right. You know, it looks yeah. like a check-in counter. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it was a little bit, you know, it was a I thought it was a bit straight. I was like, are they going for an airport feel? Are you going to take a flight to somewhere, to modern art or something? Like, but so I love a bad that, metaphor. But <laughs> I, no, but I think there's a great metaphor. Like, we're about to take off. Like, this is, we're going on a journey. Like, I, I, I love that. Yeah, and then you have the space agey, like the, you know, Philip Perenos, you know, in that lobby, which are kind of futuristic and space mm. agey. So it really felt like that. And then you have those big black screens. I'm like, okay, the flight, Numbers are going to come up right now, telling me where my destination <laughs> is. And it was well, black and, black and white is definitely the visual mode. Sorry, I'm not trying to be facetious here. I really no, no, no. I'm working with what you're saying, and 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 the yeah, you have that. What you would think of as the this is where you go to pay your excess baggage, but the the black area, which is uh, recessed, and then the bookshop is sunken, and then that that lounge area, and then the whiteness of coming in. So whiteness with pockets of blackness, almost as as some kind of, um, well, certainly a design motif. But um, yeah, so interesting, the new building. Now, the um, uh, Raphael has already mentioned uh, Bar, uh, getting away from the Alfred H. Bar model of, um, you use the word teleological. Uh, I remember when I was uh, looking at the first kind of new MoMA um, in my uh, experience, which was after they closed down for a bit and opened after the millennium uh, with that. Was that the time? I'm getting a bit mixed up because there were the millennial exhibitions, but then there was that long period of closure when they moved to Queens. And um, um, then that's when they came up with the major new architecture. And rather foolishly, I didn't look up the dates and get the timeline right, but I've got a feeling it was about 15 years ago. 2005, thank you. Um, and, um, well, um, I remember speaking to, I won't name her, but uh, a friend of mine who uh, used to be a curator, as a retired curator of the museum, and I was saying, oh, it's an interesting, fresh, kind of revisionist uh, um, take on, on the, the history, and I thought it was quite, what did she think of it? And she said, well, love it or hate it, the old MoMA told a story. It, it, it sent you... It, it guided you in a very particular path. You couldn't really deviate from that path. And with each new chapter, you got uh, a, a new, an expansion or a turn or a move or a retreat, but you had, um, a, like a great novel, uh, a, a story that you were being told as you went around MoMA. Well, um, to some extent, uh, with the historic displays, that narrative is still, uh, there is narrativity entrenched, but now we have some very interesting uh, accents or flashbacks or uh, dream sequences within what's otherwise a narrative. When we have, um, when we have Faith Ringold 
uh, hanging in a predominantly Picasso room as our intro to the, uh, to, to, to the story of modernism, uh, where the Matisse room um, is, is accented by um, uh, Alma Thomas. Um, uh, so we have this intersection in a, in a very white narrative of, um, of, of a kind of black, what is it? Is it a black echo, a black commentary, a black, um, uh, an African-American twist? What, what, what are the, um, you know, it feels, feels fresh, revisionist, interesting, uh, different, um, but what precisely um, are we to do with um, uh, Ringgold and Thomas when we're looking at Picasso and Matisse, would you say, Seth? Well, one of the things I actually wrote about this confluence of history and theory and pedagogy and uh, professional orientation of art museums in my book. And one of the things that Tate did was it took very seriously the notion that visitors are self-actualized human beings who can make meaning for themselves. So what, we, what, what it did, and I, and I spent a, quite a bit of time in my dissertation talking about this particular m m gallery in Tate Modern, which had the viewer, a visitor I should say, walk through uh, sort of on this long enfilade past a piece by um, um, Barnett Newman, uh, two paintings, Adam and Eve by Barnett Newman, and a large sculpture by, um, uh, now I'm blanking on his name, it's called Ishi's Light, and he's one of the most famous British um, sculptors around. Then he invented the Vanta Black thing. Uh, Anish Kapoor. Thank you, Anish Kapoor. Um, what it did in that moment is allow the visitor to make meaning for herself, being situated between these two objects from different time periods and with different sort of sets of concerns animating them. Mm. I think that's what happens here. I think we are allowed to, in that moment, when we see Alma Thomas and see how the, the sort of color lifts off the canvas, right, with her work, and you can see that kind of gesture in Matisse's work too, that, that notion that the color can just like come alive, that it can, that it can that, and Matisse uses color to guide you through his work. And I think that happens. I mean, I, I was just talking with Shemister before the uh, panel about the lovely room where Sengen and Goody and Marin Hassinger get to talk to each other. And Marin Hassinger has these um, sprouts on the, on, the, on, the, on the ground. And Sengen and Goody, of course, has these very sort of um, cantilevered um, pockets where, uh, of, of, I guess, earth. Um, uh, against the wall at rakish angles, and this sort of angularity and the notion that these things come up from the ground mm. really, really mm. create a, a, a conversation. I, so I think this is what MoMA is actually moving towards, is this notion that you don't actually have to tell the, vi the visitor what to think. You can actually uh, just give us provocative objects that ping pong off each other mm. and allow us to do the intellectual work. Yes, well, cool. 
but what is that intellectual work? That's that's the. I mean, it's it's good that yeah, you're right. We need to do the, we we are free to do the intellectual work, uh, and and you've described it in relation to to Thomas and Matisse. Um, um, Raphael, perhaps what troubles me a bit is the is the. Um, well, there's two things that trouble me. Um, it's it's very curious because actually. Um, I'm just teaching modernism for the first time. I've been teaching contemporary art for too many years, and um, I took the opportunity to teach the modern period, 1880 to 1945, um, precisely because I wanted to rethink that issue and see what it's like teaching um, undergraduates. Um, and I thought, great, I'll spend the summer in New York, and I'll just spend my every, every twice a week I'll go to MoMA, and I'll just immerse myself in the collections there, and, and the canon will just uh, tell me what to do. Um, of course, I arrived on my bicycle. Like everyone, I'd, I'd received the press releases telling me the museum was going to be closed for the summer, but um, for some reason I didn't read them. Anyway, um, <laughs> back, back home, however, with my... Uh, 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 story of Modern Art by Norbert Linton and a few other books. I thought, how can I, how can I stand in front of what's going to be a diverse audience, um, my class? Um, how, how am I going to overcome the embarrassment of the fact that everyone I'm talking about is a white, dead white European male, right up until, God, I mean, until we get to Paula Murdison Becker for five minutes, and then back to dead white European males until maybe a quick mention of Natalia Goncharova. Um, and I thought, I've got an idea. Uh, each week, I will accent what, uh, what we're looking at. I will find a contemporary artist um, to, to, dis to, to throw in to the discussion as a, as a contemporary accent on uh, a reverberation. I was going to call them reverberations. And I thought, you know, I even had Stanley Whitney lined up for when we were talking about Matisse. Uh, but then uh, I realized that the syllabus was too complicated and didn't have time for it, and I scrapped the idea. But I was kicking myself when I actually finally made it into the galleries and thought, wow, they had the same idea as me, and I could have actually gotten there a week before them if I was uh, just stuck with my guns. But um, the thing is, however, uh, one of the reasons I jettisoned my ideas, I thought, my poor undergraduates in New Jersey uh, are going to have a, enough trouble sort of coming to terms with Matisse and Durand and Flamanc and people. If I throw in Stanley Whitney as well, is it just going to send them in their heads spinning? Um, now, we're not undergraduates in New Jersey. We're, um, we're of a different caliber. But when we're wandering around the galleries and we come to a room of Picasso, uh, and there is a marvelous painting by Faith Ringgold. Um, it's in such a different register, isn't it? Is it like a bit like hearing a video in a gallery where you're trying to look at paintings? Um, I mean, I'm, you know, th this is like the first thing to talk about, you know, and, and I think the museum consciously did that, and, and I feel like, you know, you mentioned the previous iteration and, and renovation of MoMA, like who remembers that? I don't remember now, like much of, you know, what maybe at the time seemed some sort of, you know, bold revision, but I feel like this uh, juxtaposition of Faith Ringgold's 1967 painting and the Demoiselle d'Avignon is something that is just going to reverberate. It's like once you've seen that, you're never going to forget it. And 
I feel like one of the things it has done is it's liberated that Picasso, it's liberated Demoiselle from being simply the kind of, you know, starting point of modern 20th century painting, and now it can be something else. And I think that that, you know, your, your, your instinct, your intuition about trying to make your students realize, like, be able to relate to a mm. uh, hundred-year-old work by dead white guys is, mm. it's, it has to, it, it, you know, it, it's the extent to which a painting can be subjected to more readings and more interpretations is a index of its greatness, I think. And it's because that, you know, Picasso, like, this is actually the best thing that's happened to Picasso for a long time, I think. <laughs> and, and it's the best thing that's happened to the museum. And yeah, the, these are two very different paintings. And in, in some ways, that's what makes it so shocking and radical. Like, and yet, you know, as the museum was conscious of, Faith Ringgold's painting is made in response to Guernica. It's like that that the gray grid behind the figures is the is that uh, grisaille of Guernica, and it has the violence that Guernica. It's like in some ways it's it's sort of rem reminding us that that painting used to live in MoMA, yes. and it's also connecting again Picasso as a very politically involved. Um, figure, an artist who, you know, responded to fascism and the Spanish Civil War and the Korean War and those things. I haven't seen much of that Picasso mm. in the Museum of Modern Art or for a long time or maybe ever. So I feel like this is a, you know... And also acknowledging that this canonical work, this, this primogenitor of modernist works, um, is uh, is drawn very heavily not only on Iberian archaic uh, images but also on African carving. So there's a, um, a little bit of a, a circular debt being paid there. Um, yeah, right. Um, well, I think let's um, let's go to the. Um, oh yes, there we have the Ringgold and the Picasso. Great. Um, to our second loop, um, where we're now thinking about the initial um, uh, the initial exhibition offerings that have been selected for this uh, momentous reopening, and um, it seems MoMA, uh, like all um, major institutions, um, has done a fairly poor job if not a spectacularly poor job in its history of uh, acknowledging the um, um, African-American constituency that of, of, of its audience. Um, and um, But actually, that's maybe a glib statement. One should bear in mind that uh, the work of um, uh, um, uh, Jacob Lawrence was collected from very early um, at MoMA, and uh, that, in fact, Interestingly, perversely, one might even say, some of the um, uh, founders of MoMA, not just curators, but, but collectors, um, almost took the view that um, uh, modernism was something done by Frenchmen, and that the uh, modern spirit in North America 
is, is best personified by the Mexican muralists and also by um, uh, naive art within uh, an, an American tradition and, and that actually there's been, um, it was realism and also um, um, the work of African Americans was actually collected um, from, from the outset. But um, no question that um, uh, to be female, to be black is um, uh, no advantage when it comes to uh, serious collecting and institutional attention uh, across the board and MoMA probably no exception. Now we're in this Me Too movement, uh, we're in this Me Too moment, we're also in a, a moment of very heightened um, awareness and, and, and sensitivity and interest in um, the overlooked uh, aspects of culture. So is, is this uh, sort of, um, I mean, well, MoMA's really putting its um, inclusivist foot forward, isn't it, with uh, an opening salvo of exhibitions uh, that includes uh, a project room for Michael Armitage, um, a look at the early uh, radical works of William Pope L, um, a, a look at a completely overlooked figure in, in Betty Saar, uh, as well as the inclusion of Thomas and uh, Ringgold and others in the uh, canonical display. Um, it seems like um, uh, a, a, a flood after years of famine. Um, Sharmister, um, uh, you, you've spoken about how more included you feel as somebody uh, outside uh, the uh, uh, Western tradition, not tradition, but outside of, uh, um, well, you phrase it very well, and I'm now massacring it and rephrasing it, but um, you put it very well as somebody from India uh, and other parts of Asia. Um, feeling more included. Um, what could you elaborate on that? Do you feel that um, MoMA has, um, first of all, I, I mean, one question would be, is MoMA going to keep it up or is this a statement for now, this massive inclusion of people of color? Well, it would be a disappointment, I mean, if they go in the reverse direction and go back to the Alfred J. Barr days, because, I mean, we're so tired of those narratives. I mean, they were important, they've been documented, there are many books, you know, of this history, but, you know, I think it comes down to who controls the narrative and does it need to be controlled? Um, and I certainly don't feel that it needs to be controlled. Um, I think that, as Seth said, uh, can we not, you know, have other people do that work and form their own connections with the work and with other works that are being displayed. You know, can the viewer be the person making, you know, creating the narratives, right? So it's kind of displacing a little bit of the onus. Now, I don't know which way, you know, that could go two ways. I think they've done it really successfully this time. Um, and beyond the white black you know uh, narratives, um, I would say even if you look at South Asia, there are four major works, all by South Asian women artists, just on that second floor, well, not just on the second floor, but between the second floor and the eleven installations um, there's uh, an incredible hemp fiber work dominating one of those first rooms you walk into uh, of Minalini Mukherjee, who just had a solo you know, posthumous solo exhibition at the Med Breuer recently, these incredible 
it's you know it's handwoven it you know speaks to kind of these hand you know handicraft traditions of india it speaks to you know not only female sexuality but female labor all these kind of things and um and it just dominates that first room it's just a towering work and it's in conversation with marlene dumas it's in conversation with Anna Mendieta. It's in conversation with Zarina Hashmi, another artist from South Asia who's lived in New York. Um, and then you have in another room, like an entire room with the you know kind of glass facade of Sheila Gowda, who is a Bangalore-based artist and really has been in Documenta, many important exhibitions, but not really known in the US. She's been given an entire room. It's kind of like that deconstructed house, uh, you know, it's kind of Bauhaus, kind of constructivist, um, and it's kind of these splintered remains of these houses from Bangalore. Um, and she's talking about how these, you know, neighborhoods are being overtaken and demolished. Um, so, I mean, and, and these are actually powerful works. They're not from a certain kind of narrative that has been told. These are masterpieces. I mean, if, if I can use that term. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I, they had me right there. I mean, and to have those conversations happening, I'm okay if they have assemblies of women, you know, in distinct parts of the museum. I think that's been one of the criticisms that they've just, you know, kind of huddled all the women together in certain rooms. I, but for me, in certain places, it really worked. Mm. Because I have never seen these artists in conversation with each other, and I thought, wow. Um, but it does make, however, of the visiting, visiting MoMA, I, I, you know, my feelings are 85% positive about the new MoMA. Um, I think it's uh, beautifully done, and I think it's raising really interesting and intelligent um, points that we do need to think about. I mean, just with the, in relation to the Popel exhibition, um, I, I've, I've seen, um, uh, you know, I, I've seen manifestations of Popel and in fact, we've discussed him at uh, the review panel a couple of times, once in relation to the biennial and once for a solo exhibition he had. And whenever I've seen relatively recent works uh, by uh, Pope L, I've just been, why does this guy have such a reputation? He seems like such a, uh, what's it about? And then seeing that beautifully researched and well-documented, very concentrated uh, retrospective on, I mean, on, on the early period of his work, uh, ah, I see, I get it. So, I mean, there's a slight feeling still of his having now sort of traded on a well-established past reputation in slightly thin, more recent works, but that's not the issue. The issue is that MoMA's done a slap-up job of really putting us into the context of, um, of these early performances, documenting what he was doing, why he was doing it, and uh, in, a, in a way that's not over poweringly didactic, it just lets the information and the documentation and the reenactments uh, speak for themselves and it, it's exactly the kind of educational experience I need and want from the major museum of modern art in the world. But I must say there's a certain extent of, of going through MoMA at the moment and feeling I'm almost a, a, a documenta or a, a Venice Biennale. This is a, a current interpretation of global art that gives uh, full recognition to the most urgent uh, socio-political concerns that art historians and critics and the art world has at the moment. And thinking, but wait a minute, it's MoMA. I've come to MoMA for something 
a little more fixed. I know it's a museum of modern art, and, and modern is by definition uh, transitory and moving all the time, but still, I want a bit of a canon, please. This is the place for a canon, and Documenta is a place for this is our latest thinking on this subject. Raphael? Is that, it's almost as if MoMA's reinventing, um, it's, it's not just the Alfred H. Barr didactic narrative and the teleology that's out, but it's the very notion of this is a place, this is a repository of um, um, a correct understanding of, some understanding of modernism. Well, I, you know, I think we were talking before about the narratives, like there are multiple narratives, and I think that there are, you know, I think the exhibition of the Cisneros collection of Latin American modernism, abstract yeah. art, which is, one of the things that really impressed me about it was just how extensive it was, like gallery after gallery after mm. gallery. And I mean, I know something, a little something about Latin American modernism, but 75% mm. of those artists were new to me. And that was, and, and it was also, it felt like it wasn't just a token gesture to like, oh, we're going to include mm. a few Latin American artists. No, we're going to like try to give you a larger story. Mm. And so I think that, I don't think that MoMA has completely sort of given up or surrendered its, um, its ambitions to, to make canons and to mm. present, present narratives. But I just, there was another point I wanted to make coming back to, you mentioned the William Popel and the, yeah. uh, the Alice Nassar. Yeah. So what I liked about those exhibitions is they were they were small like mini surveys. Mm. Like and I thought what well, we don't have to have like this giant retrospective where we see like you know 50 years of an artist's work and 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 also that in it, I think it those shows tend to be so much about like power and the dominance of a certain artist and I felt like Maybe this, like, is almost a more sort of guerrilla, um, kind of guerrilla survey where it's just yeah, it's a pop really focused. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, mm. I re and it's also not so exhausting. You can really, yeah. you know, you, you just, you don't leave kind of dazed, but you actually can. Yeah. I, I felt that that was also sort of more in keeping with how artists work. It's funny, actually, I felt more exhausted seeing the new Pace Gallery than I did seeing the new MoMA, which has got to, got to be a few uh, feet uh, bigger. Um, but, um, uh, uh, yeah, but it's, it's, um, it, it seems to me that this is really um, a very heavily revisionist. This is, this is MoMA's big kind of revisionist moment, and there are different kinds of revisionism when we come to uh, look at uh, uh, Amy Silman's room in a few moments. I think we'll see... Um, a, a more Dionistic, uh, inclusivist uh, form of um, uh, expansive um, uh, kitchen sink and all kind of revisionism. Um, uh, but just going back to the canonical displays for a moment, um, it, what, one thing that happens when you, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say, well, Two things about it: the Picasso room with with Faith Ringgold in it again is that um, on the one hand um, uh, there's a revisionism. Well, 
because it's Picasso, it's so heavily Picasso, it kind of goes against the point that Raphael was making about the, the heavy, big reputations. Um, you remember that Picasso and Braque invented Cubism. Uh, Picasso said, Braque is my wife, and uh, Braque said, uh, we're like two mountaineers uh, climbing up, tethered together by a rope. Uh, Braque has disappeared. Now, I'm not saying he's disappeared to make room for Faith Ringgold. He's, made, he's really disappeared to make room for more and more and more Picasso. Um, so it, see, it seems that actually it's as if there's the, the, the curators are saying, you can only concentrate on one or two things at a time. Let's give you lots of Picasso. Let's shake things up with Faith Ringgold, but let's not complicate things with Braque. Well, I mean, I, I, I would push back against that only because I think, one, I don't know what the curators in MoMA are assuming or doing. Or I, 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 I can sort of, we can sort of read intention refracted through the uh, galleries that we experience. But more to the point for me is the idea that, um, that as I was saying before, my research has shown that it's important for visitors now to be treated as if they have the intellectual capacities to grok alternate histories, alternate timelines, alternate modernisms. And I think that um, giving up Brock is, is not about necessarily assuming that um, the museum doesn't have a narrative to tell or cannot tell a full narrative anymore because it's taken this sort of revisionist tack. But, on, but more that, um, I'm trying to hold on to this thought and it's slipping away from me as, I, as I'm speaking, but more the idea that, yes, that, uh, that the experience is more important than the actual um, story the experience of seeing the works and making those connections. I mean, Raphael just did it in, yeah. um, five minutes ago when he was talking about um, the, the, the sort of critical homologies between, these, the, between Ringgold and, and Picasso. Mm. Like, that's the work. That's the experience of, doing, of being in that room. Mm. That's what I think art museums are actually generally moving towards, and I think they should, because I think that the old model of being a sort of pedagogical um, delivery system where we assume that the visitor is just sort of this ignorant person and the curator can just sort of open up his or her head and just pour their knowledge into uh, them and then close it back up and send them out you know, into the world enlightened is, is just not feasible. It doesn't But you work. know, MoMA has the unique ability that, that most museums around the world don't have of telling the story of modernism. Because, you know, when, when the Tate Gallery really shook things up, because the Tate wanted to become, when it split in two and it became a Museum of Modern Art as well as the, the other Museum of British Art, when it became the Museum of Modern Art, they realized we don't have the means of telling the story of modernism the way MoMA does. Therefore, we'll give a revisionist uh, shaking up and a more thematic, by giving a thematic approach. Now, MoMA immediately followed suit. 
it 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 uh, that's what it did in in the millennial exhibitions right. is it said oh uh they're doing something else in london we better keep up with london and they did a thematic group of shows which they didn't need to do uh they didn't have the raison d'etre that that london had um now with with um, the canonical dis with the displays of say the abex painters um there is a, a strong need uh to include women um because you know we, we all know they're there they're there now um so that's well, we could say ah oh, thank god at last how refreshing uh here they are in their full splendor uh frankenthaler and um uh, there's even uh, pat pasloff as, as well as Lee Krasner and so on and so forth yeah. but does that perhaps that's that's kind of that's saying in a way um Men and women visiting MoMA today must all feel included, and they will feel the more included, the females will feel the more included, by seeing great works by women artists. But that's at the same time a revisionism because the women were overlooked in their moment. Now, I'm not, not saying, oh, let's carry on overlooking women in order that people should have a historically correct notion of what things were like in the 1940s and 50s. But um, if we say goodbye, Gottlieb, goodbye, Motherwell, you can have one painting in the Frank O'Hara show, uh, and uh, uh, goodbye, uh, uh, Baziotis. Um, make space, please, for the ladies. Now, is that not sort of, in a way, um, a dangerous revisionism because it's actually uh, it's a new canon. What is the new canon really based on quality, or is it based on political correctness, or is it based on civics? What's going on? Well, I would disagree with you there because I think that women were very much a part of the story in the same way Brock was a part of the story. History and the telling of this grand narrative has written them all out. So we're actually recovering stories that have been lost by these dominant narratives. So for me, it's not, as an intelligent viewer, um, it's not about wanting to feel included. It's about getting a more complicated story about the way things actually were. Women existed, they were working at that time in the same way Hilma af Klint was working in her time. Why are we discovering her, discovering her now? Because someone had the balls, who was a woman, to tell that story and to blow up the story of modern art. You know, a woman didn't get there first. I mean, a man didn't get there first, a woman did. That's not the part of the story I'm interested in. But the fact is, we're looking at this incredible body of work. And to say that, you know, it didn't exist in its time, of course it existed in its time. And that, those stories need to be told. I also think that there's a kind of um, sort of sort of voce assumption that's being made when that question uh, is posed to a group of people who care about art. That question of whether it's uh, political correctness or quality is a false opposition. And it's also the, the other assumption that is being made, the assumption that's underlying all of that is that this is somehow this sort of revisionist, and I even have a problem with that word, but this new sort of narrative is somehow, it's, it's, it's almost the same thing. It's going to displace the grand narrative. It's going to displace the gospel according to MoMA. 
and what, oh, whatever will the poor oh, dead white men do? I mean, it is kind of like that, that anxiety around um, white supremacists marching in places like Charlottesville, right? Saying, you will not replace us. There's a kind of parallel concern that they will be put on the ash heap of history, so to speak, and never be heard from again. But the truth of the matter is, we all know that the museum's collection rotates. Like this is not the this is not going to be the be all and end all of this iteration of um, particular kinds of modernisms, right? Because they're, they're plural. This is one iteration. Um, I'm sure that in a year or two they will rotate in new works. And again, I hope that they put works in conversation with each other again to really just privilege our abilities to make meaning. I think that's fundamental to museums going forward. Yes. And I think it's also fundamental to not in a sort of, in a sense of, it ends up feeling compensatory when they, when they mount shows like Hilma Alf Clint because she was there, right? And we're just recognizing it now. But yeah, that needs to happen too. I mean, it does need to, we need that compensatory uh, gesture. Right. I mean, I think that the the fact that the collection on display is in flux now is as important as the as the works that are selected to the, the increased representation of women or minorities, and I think that like what they're saying is that there is it, you know everything is it's situational, mm -hmm. it's provisional, it's temporary, and there's going to be another you know other voices in. It's, this is not going to sit there unchanged for years or decades. It's like, and this, like, it's saying, like, these are the things that some of us are concerned with right now that we think are interesting. Right. Um, but the, one of the things that, and I think you've alluded to it, Seth, is that, like, the curators are, you know, they're making decisions they're anonymous. We don't know, I mean, we don't know who decides to put, you know, to make that uh, juxtapositions and have artists' works in dialogue. And, and, you know, I think like every work in the museum has like a double, triple, quadruple function. Like it's there as itself. It's there uh, representing that artist's uh, entire oeuvre maybe. It's there representing a particular narrative or a particular theme. It's there representing the museum's collection. It then becomes part of this like syntactical unit within everything that's there right now. And like, so it's, and I think that maybe this is, I don't want to jump ahead right now, but I can't help contrast the Amy Silman yes, uh, selection. Um, uh, Sam, if we could have the uh, next loop with just Amy Silman, that'd be great. And just the fact that Amy Silman, we know, like, we know that the person, Amy Silman, the painter who selected all of those works in that gallery, which is not the case with every, all the other works in the museum. Mm. And I just mm. wonder, like, how that changes our, our response to it, our reading yeah, to it. Yeah, this seems to me a different, as I say, a different kind of revisionism. Um, uh, I found it a, a, a really, I, it's, it's like seeing a, a Frank Gehry building in a city, you think, um, I love this building, but I'm glad the whole city doesn't look like this. So um, one, would, one would not want Amy Silman let loose in the whole museum, 
but uh, contained in one room, it's it's really a, a, I found a joy. Any any quick takes on Amy's um, what Amy was doing with this room? I loved it. I mean, um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, of course, I like Amy Silman. I like the way she thinks. I like her as an artist and as a thinker as well. Um, I thought it was, again, allowing the viewer to make certain relationships. Of course, it was kind of non-hierarchical. It was also funny. Mm. I think knowing Amy Silman's work, this, there was a great deal of irony happening yes. here with the juxtapositions. You have like this... You know, sometimes very obvious and kind of slapstick, like you have this Henri Matisse kind of painting of mm. a, a, boy a derriere yes. or something, mm. you know, and then there's another photo or something of somebody's behind, you know, like juxtaposed. So there was a lot of humor at play, which, you know, I mean, if you know her work as well, you could pick up yes. through what she had done. I don't think it was just kind of being subversive and non-hierarchical and having all these juxtapositions of modern art, I think there was really a serious kind of humor at play yes. as well, uh, mm. you know, in this display. Yes, yes, cool. Um, uh, but I agree, I wouldn't want the entire museum to look like this. No, no, this is, this is making an installation. I mean, we, it, it, it's, it's actually, um, Sam, we're probably going to skip section uh, four and go straight to the fifth loop um, next. Um, and um, it, it does beg the notion, the question, um, what, is, what is an installation? I mean, installation, um, uh, Silman is making installation art, and an Amy Silman, out of objects within MoMA's collection. Uh, MoMA itself is making installations, uh, left, right, and center, um, putting um, uh, Alma Thomas next to uh, uh, Henri Matisse. Um, um, and then there is, um, um, on the fifth floor, um, this exhibition called Surrounds 11 Installations. This is uh, Sheila Hicks in the entrance here, and then uh, Sarah Z, and you don't need don't need me to know what they are. Um, somebody's hopefully put the names of the artists uh, bottom left. Anyway, um, so we have uh, uh, this um, installation of installations. Um, uh, um, what do we think of um, that ethos, that, that idea of having a, a show about installation? It's obviously a very, it's obviously a fundamental uh, genre of, of contemporary art. Um, uh, let, uh, Raphael, why did you lead us on this one? Well, one of the connections I, I found would surprise me, maybe not directly answering your question yet, a uh, relationship between um, Amy Silman's uh, selections from the museum's collection and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name uh, right, Arthur Jaffa's um, uh, video uh, Apex. And I thought, in some ways, what he was, what he's doing in this video, which is a uh, like an eight-minute-long um, video with uh, still images, like hundreds of still images, which are just up for maybe a second, and with a soundtrack, like a, a Detroit techno soundtrack, and he's sort of combed through like decades of sort of photojournalism, 
American, black American music history, pop music history in general, scientific images, and he's, he, you have this sense of like the sensibil sensibility of an artist looking through the kind of image world. And I think in some ways, like Amy Silman, like I'm, in, you know, with Amy Silman, I was interested because I'm interested in her as a painter to see her selections. And I think also with Arthur Jaffa, there's this, it's a sensibility and a, and a perspective that's done through, right. they're basically like museums within museums. Right. And, um, but that, so. Thank you, yeah. That, but, finish your sentence. Okay. Um, and I don't know, you, you're wondering about the installation, like an, an, an no, no, installation well, uh, of installations, is that? No, I think you, you've given us a good perspective on that. Um, let me just, uh, I, we are actually sort of running out of time, and I do want to give the audience uh, some uh, moments to, to express some views in a moment. But um, let me just ask each of the panelists, um, this is a, a, a fantastically rich selection of exhibitions to go and look at. Um, we haven't even touched on, on many uh, other shows uh, that MoMA are offering at the moment. Um, in one sentence, a little plug, uh, each, each of you, um, of um, uh, one show that, uh, or one aspect that really um, um, sent your head spinning and you want to go back and look more at that. Um, um, I think with you, the O'Hara, for instance. Right, there is this small um, exhibition in the room, in, in the, a room uh, devoted in the museum to uh, the poet and curator Frank O'Hara, and who was a curator at MoMA in the early 1960s, and it has, you know, you can sit and read some of his books of poetry, you can see after he died, uh, artists made, you know, who he was close friends with, made a suite of um, prints that MoMA published, and and there are portraits of him, and it's just sort of going back and like, mm. that for me, that was a, a surprise, and mm. makes space for not just the history, but for poetry into the museum as yes. a poet. That was yes, and you're, you're a poet who teaches theory, and probably, um, there are probably a few poets on the uh, MoMA staff at the moment, but they may be keeping a low profile. Uh, certainly, uh, O'Hara was a major, member of the New York School. Uh, I would put in a plug for the, a wonderful project room exhibition in this uh, amazing kind of basement space. The project rooms have always been a little bit problematic at MoMA, but now you actually can look down into them as a little well of um, uh, the future. Uh, a, rather, um, a rather beautiful show of paintings by a man named uh, Michael uh, Armitage that uh, I found pretty pretty enticing. Um, Sharmista, you've given us an ecstatic, raps rhapsodic view of the four Asian women <laughs> on the second floor. That might be what you want to contribute to this bit. Okay. Okay, and... So, so um, MoMA's extremely special for me. I've said this, I've told this story, and I'm not gonna go all the way through it now because it's a longer story. But I've told this story about MoMA being the place where I first encountered modern art, first, first encountered visual art, and how it really, I felt like it took up, it sort of inhabited me from that moment on and, and helped me, or helped put me on the road to have the life that I have now. And there's this really lovely moment in the current 
uh, iteration of MoMA, where in the stairwell they have a painting called, titled Bauhaus Stairway by oh, yeah. Oskar Schlemmer. And I remember it from the first time I went there. Um, it being near that near a stairwell, and then uh, that reminded me of um, of two other artists that really stood out to me from the first time I went to the museum. I was eight, uh, 17 years old and never been to an, a museum of art before, and I remember seeing a piece by Louis Bourgeois and seeing, um, uh, which is called Sleeper Two, and seeing. Unique, unique forms of continuity in space by the Boccioni. by Boccioni, the Italian futurist, and I still see them now. So I'm I, so there's like a part of me that's like a little kid inside that just like skips through the museum to see this stuff, and then when I see it, <laughs> I'm happy again. The Schlemmer on, on the Bauhaus uh, staircase is is almost a kind of <laughs> curatorial joke by MoMA because there, there's always that there's underground resistance. Is the Schlemmer still there? Because that is, that we know that whatever revisionism and whatever new iterations and whatever. The water lilies are there too. The water lilies are there too. Thank you, uh, water lilies. Um, a, a quick five minutes, audience, and then thanks to the generous patronage of our sponsors uh, at One Grand Army Plaza, the apartment house over the road, we're all uh, invited for a drink and a nibble um, after the panel. Um, it's just the Richard Meyer building, the white building, just uh, on the other side of Eastern Parkway. But we've got time for a couple of quick comments. Yes. Um, yes, Justin Sterling. Um, so I think we all like the new MoMA, and it's like super inclusive. It, you, you said yourself it kind of is like a global conversation about art. About two weeks ago, I was having uh, dinner with like an Aboriginal artist and a Native American artist. And they were talk we were talking about MoMA, and we, we were talking about their experience going to the new museum. And basically their experience was scouring the museum, all the walls, to find even just one indigenous artist, and there were none. And that was like very, I don't know, disconcerting to me, because I mean like the, the entirety of Manhattan, where we are now, is like stolen land. And so there's no acknowledgement of indigenous representation or like, a, a, I mean, the Whitney does and a few other museums do, but not MoMA. Jeffrey Bishop. Thank you. Um, just a couple of thoughts. I, I think like, like many, I've only had one cursory spin through. Uh, and so the excitement for me is the idea that so many of us um, who are um, used to going to museums frequently and and many others who are not will, will, will go to MoMA multiple, multiple times in the next year to absorb these, these new uh, juxtapositions and, uh, and really feel the degree to which the modernism of the early part of the 20th century has been not so much revised or perhaps just revised to include a greater geographical spread and to, to South Asia, to South America, to, to all parts of the world where those, those uh, narratives have not previously been included, but where there was distinctly modernism happening. One last thought. I, I read recently a review of the, the new MoMA in the London Review of Books by Hal Foster, and I thought it was a pretty interesting review by Hal, um, fairly journalistic coming from him, but he, uh, and, and quite positive, I should say, but, but he made one statement that kind of 
really stuck with me and that and quite surprised me and that was that for him uh, sort of sort of an arch orthodox Octoberist uh, he found that the Abex generation, particularly Newman, maybe the color field painters, Newman and Rothko and, and others, seemed elevated in the architecture, whereas the minimalists, Judd, Andre, Morris, somewhat diminished. And, and that, 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 that minimalism that sprung to uh, post-minimalism and, and really the sort of uh, theoretical thinking that, that Hal was about in the 80s, leading up to pictures and whatever, um, that that minimalism was somehow diminished in its impact on the current global conversation, the current wider conversation, that it, it had not so much the power that it might have had a while back, so. That's, yeah, so, thanks, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, one last comment, yes. Uh, uh, I'll just say, like, um, in the in the context of all the changes that were talked about throughout all the, the various shows at the MoMA, it's actually kind of interesting and uh, a bit of a curveball to, to read what Amy Silman wrote about how she went about her curating her installation, which was actually quite formal in talking about shape. You know, it's actually kind of exciting to read that. Um, and as, as much as that's a foundational element of everything, it felt kind of uh, wonderfully unusual. Fantastic. No one talks about that. Artists are allowed to. Curators have forbidden themselves from doing so. Well, uh, I have a personal request from you, audience. Uh, two things. Number one, please keep your eyes skinned on artcritical.com, where you can hear podcasts of uh, this and all the, or most of the, panels that have taken place over the last 15 years, and where you can also um, uh, see news of um, upcoming panels. Uh, we haven't quite confirmed everything for December, uh, but uh, we will have that news up very soon. Uh, put yourself on the mailing list if you're not on it already. And um, second request, um, let's keep our conversations fresh for the party at one Grand Army Plaza and be kind to the um, staff here at Brooklyn Public Library, who are entitled to be uh, going home and in enjoying the rest of their evening very soon. Um, we do basically need to be out of here in about 45 seconds. So um, let's make our way pronto to, uh, uh, to one Grand Army Plaza. Thank you. <laughs>